you've alluded to kind of like a dick version of Doug. Yeah, I think that in the midst of the narcissism, especially the the sort of more phallic forms of it, were I really lacked empathy a great deal for people. He saw reality too clearly. Faulty denial mechanism. Failed to block out the terrible truths of existence. In the end, his inability to push away the awful facts of being in the world rendered his life meaningless. Or as one great Hollywood producer said, too much reality is not what the people want. a memory of my parents fighting. We were living in a rental house my grandfather owned, and I had the basement room all to myself. One night, the sun started to set, and the smells of dinner drifted down the stairs, and I realized that my father hadn't come home from work yet. I asked my mom where he was, and she told me in a clear and blunt tone that he wasn't coming. At the time, he owned a furniture store, and he was going to just sleep there, on one of the beds. I was indignant. I told her, no, that's not happening. I called his store. I don't even remember what the fight was about. But for the next two hours, my mom sat on the basement stairs and I paced my room as I mediated between the two of them, trying to convince him that it was not okay for him to just not come home. I was determined to keep our shit together. Eventually, he walked in the door and gave me and my mom hugs before I went to bed. I did everything I could to keep our shit together for several more years, but I couldn't do it. I remember the feeling of determination to solve their problems, and ultimately my own inadequacy to keep our family from breaking apart. I now know that determination to keep people from breaking apart was an unconscious motivation for me practicing therapy, and a way of proving my self-worth to myself. And I have to stay aware of this. Because sometimes people need to break apart. So what makes a therapist? I think there's probably a family genetic component to it that oftentimes people who decide to go into therapy as a profession 
have been practicing as a therapist previously to their professional training, usually in the families of origin that they came from. Many people who have a what's referred to as a preoccupied attachment style um, frequently become therapists because they've spent years in their families reading facial cues and understanding uh, nonverbal body language uh, in terms of orienting themselves inside of the family. This is Doug Hanson. He's a therapist and a professor in Seattle. And if you're a young therapist here, you might have heard of him because he's also a well-respected supervisor. That means that he provides some of us with guidance and consultation. He's also who I go to when I need support. But this is the most we've ever talked about him. If you know Doug, you know his references to his younger self always seem dissonant. He's a kind and gentle person, but he describes himself back then as narcissistic and kind of a jerk. He gave me a little bit more context and explained some of what goes on in the development of the mind of a therapist. person who tries to secure their relationships by paying much more attention to what the other person in the relationship is feeling and thinking um, in an imbalanced way so that they're not so aware of their own self-thoughts or self-feelings, self-expression, as much as they're preoccupied with the expressiveness of the other person. And so are these skills that get developed? I think they do. It becomes, often the attachment people refer to it as a strategy. And so these skills get honed because the person understands their way of securing their selves and relationship by being um, attentive um, to the expressiveness of the other at the cost to their own self-expressiveness. The second factor that might make or contribute to making a therapist is being a client. And that many therapists, I think, have had pretty transformative experiences being clients. And so they find that something that has been so useful and helpful to them uh, inspires them to want to be that useful and, and inspiring to others. Almost like their own therapy is kind of like the match, that, the spark that lights the kindling of all the family stuff. Exactly, right, that it helps them understand um, how their roles developed, for instance, in their family. Uh, hopefully helps them to feel feelings that they perhaps were not encouraged or endorsed to feel uh, in their family experience, that their relationship to their own therapist Um, enables them to feel more and think more than perhaps any other relationship. And so in those ways, maybe they discover it to be transformative in a way that encourages them to want to pursue the field itself. Michael B. Sussman wrote a very interesting book in the 90s called A Curious Calling, in which he looks at some of the unconscious motivations of therapists. In the book, he quotes some of the founders of psychoanalysis, showing us that the importance of the mind of the therapist is not a new interest. We have known about the importance of the psychology of the therapist since the beginnings of psychoanalysis. In 1905, Sigmund Freud wrote, It is not a modern dictum, but an old saying of physicians, 
that these diseases are not cured by the drug, but by the physician, that is, by the personality of the physician, inasmuch as through it he exerts a mental influence. Carl Jung wrote, The personality and attitude of the doctor are of supreme importance. Can I ask what that process was like for you? Yeah, I uh, was in therapy for, I believe, 19 years. Um, I saw my first therapist when my first marriage was falling apart. I think I was 24 years of age, 1975 or so, 1974. I saw that person um, for seven years periodically. Um, and I think he helped me a lot, but uh, because he was much more generous from a theological perspective than my parents had been. Uh, so I felt like that conceivably I was um, less guilty after having seen him. But what emerged was um, some self-disclosure, I believe, on his part, or at least I came to be aware of the fact that his own brother had committed suicide and that I was um, also periodically feeling suicidal during my first depression. And I think that was very hard for him to contain. I don't exactly recall how I came to know that he, his brother killed himself, although he may have told me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did feel like that um, my attempt to cope with my depression um, was not very functional. And I think that he encouraged that to some degree because of his own anxiety. So, in other words, you were soothing yourself in less functional ways, and he was okay with that. Yeah, well, he was encouraging me of me to marry this woman that I had oh. gotten involved with shortly after my father had died. And uh, I think that it was a disastrous marriage. And I think that um, that he was supportive of that, I think partly out of his own anxiety that she somehow would be able to, or that I would somehow be happy, you know, that that would solve my problem. That would cure your depression. Yeah. And so <clears throat> around that time, uh, I changed therapists and uh, started seeing a woman. Mm-hmm. And I saw her starting in 1984, probably for, yeah, maybe 10 years. So maybe I've been in therapy longer than I thought. <laughs> but I did see her pretty regularly, uh, once a week. Um, and um, then I stopped for a few years until I entered psychology training. And then I started with my analyst, who I saw for five years. And I saw my analyst uh, most of that time four days a week. You allude sometimes to kind of like a like a narcissistic shift that happened in you, and I'm curious about when that was in that timeline and what that consisted of. I really understood my father's death as a failure on my part which obviously was 
a grandiose right. uh, experience that I would be powerful enough to have him continue living. And so when he was dying, uh, I plunged into a pretty severe depression. And I think that a way I came to understand that depression was that it was this significant narcissistic failure on my part to be the idealized son that would extend or prolong his life. Even though he died in the winter of 1984, um, I actually wasn't capable of grieving until uh, the fall of, of 1990. Hmm. I spent periods of time in 84 and then later on in 89 uh, with three major depressions. I finally was involved with a woman who clearly was a father kind of figure for me and that I idealized her competence and her strength and her physical prowess and her athleticism and everything that a son would look up to and a father hmm. uh, she meant to me and because of the idealization of course I was in the idealizing her self-loathing of me which is the typical narcissistic split that the more I prized her the worse I felt about myself the most disturbing thing for me, of course, was the nature of the depression. Hmm. Um, and it was when she refused to get back together with me after I'd broken up with her because I was so depressed that I couldn't bear talking to her or seeing her without having a huge sort of psycho, psychological allergic reaction of not being able to sleep, for instance, after a telephone call. You were having the allergic reaction? Yes, that I just... It was so disturbing to me that I couldn't really function, um, which felt to me like I was kind of psychotic, actually. Hmm. Um, but that I think it was the severity of my idealization of her and how much I just absolutely hated myself. And so uh, when she refused to get back together with me, I finally grieved and... It was essentially uh, sobbing, you know, for 60 days in a row. And you weren't able to do that? Before that, no. Hmm. And so I think of that now as it was not only the loss of my idealized father, but it was also grieving the loss of my idealized self that I couldn't. Do you think during that time your patients knew? On some level. Yeah. For sure. The first depression was so badly that there clearly were times when I could not concentrate on listening to what the patient was saying because I had such strong obsessions. I guess that leads me to wonder what my responsibility is. And it just seems like we're going to go through depressing times. And maybe that's right. my own. Right. No, that's true. I mean, I think that, you know, there wasn't anything that I experienced that wasn't human. Mm -hmm. But... That said, I think that there are levels which, if we had medical or organic illnesses, mm -hmm. right, where we weren't able to function in listening and speaking, we would not try to practice until we could listen and speak again. Well, that's true. And I think that when my obsessions were as strong as they were, it was hard for me to listen.
And so you went through this grieving process in 1990, and it was... Yeah, 1991. 1991. It was a couple months of just soaking it all in. That uh, my ability to concentrate was okay then, and so I could distract my grief by listening to my patients. And then I would go in the bathroom in between patients and cry and clean up. Was your empathy there for your patients during that time? or I mean, especially for people who were depressed, of course, I became a lot more empathic. <laughs> you know, because uh, prior to getting the major depressions, I probably thought it was some form of weakness. Having had those experiences and unrealizing that something significantly was wrong with my own development. It wasn't an over-the-top narcissistic personality disorder, but I think it qualified. I guess I'm wondering what has your development as a therapist and an analyst looked like since then? Well, I think that it was pivotal. Um, I'm probably... (laughs) My patients probably get tired of hearing me talk about the healing aspects of grieving Hmm. because obviously it was the thing that seemed to heal my own characterological problems. Um, And I don't think that I could have known that in the midst of the grieving. Like, I didn't have any sense, like, oh, this is good for me. It felt horrible, of course, and terribly powerless and, um, and helpless. But... Um, yeah, it kept coming for a couple months. Like you really, you really held on to it once it happened. Embraced it. Embraced it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's an enormous amount of relief in that letting go, that surrender to that whole process of of one's own feelings, but at the same time, that sense of of powerlessness that I have come to believe is so important in terms of grieving. And is that particularly important to the mind of a therapist, the ability to let go of that? Well, I think it's particularly important to any of us in terms of our development. It's just that what developed for me around the age of, you know, 42 or 44, uh, I think, well, we hope we hope anyway that it happens to people at two or three. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, uh, you know, the consequences are so much greater at 44 than they are at 3 or 4. I would say that the consolidation of the changes that went on in my life, which led to me beginning uh, psychoanalytic training in 1998, that um, the last quarter of my life in no way resembles the first three quarters. (laughs) Yeah, wow. How are your motivations today different than they were when you first started this work? I don't think it's so much the motivations that have changed very much as much as the appreciation of the depth of our experience, much of which might be non-conscious or unconscious to us. And so I think that what's changed for me is 
lost is the degree of patience that I now feel like the change is difficult and slow. And that is certainly worth it. But that it takes endurance and stamina on the part of the patient as well as on the part of the therapist. Is there a change in the amount of gratitude you feel? Enormously. It's hard to even just answer your question right now without feeling tearful. Uh, for those first 40-some years of thinking that from a theological perspective there was something about the abundant life that I could never get to theologically, um, but that this was my road, my path to get there in a, um, you know, from a psychotherapy, psychoanalytic perspective. And I'm probably less religious than I've ever been, but my life is more abundant than it's ever been. Given all of that, I mean, the preoccupied, depressive, um, grieving therapist. Yeah. Obviously, what I'm interested in therapy is characterological change. Mm -hmm. Not everybody goes to therapy for characterological change. Mm -hmm. Some people go for symptom relief. Symptom relief just isn't very interesting to me. Uh, it's interesting to some therapists, and they're quite good at it, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, like, hypnotherapy is probably the best thing in the world for if you want to stop smoking uh, or lose weight. I think that characterological change is tied to the notion of integrating the mind. And so I think that it wasn't like necessarily new parts of my mind emerged as much as they got more integrated. Mm-hmm so that my grandiosity could get tempered by humility. And instead of being in the severe, you know, disintegrated states of being being grandiose and then being full of self-loathing, it's like those two parts of my mind can talk to each other now in some way that gives me more of a middle road, you know, to live in rather than being so dissociated from each other. And that's part of how change happens with your patients. I think that's right, is that I think that change happens because I think the mind gets more integrated. And that's both a brain function, which I think, you know, the, the brain gets rewired in some ways, but also we come to appreciate the essential aspects of our minds as something that's, our minds are social. And therefore, what I kept trying to do previously to the changes in my life is that I kept trying to make things work with people that weren't enhancing my experience of mind. And so it became really important through finding therapists who could help my experience of mind to then find people in my social life and professional life who would do the same. I think therapy in some ways is a gamble. And the gamble is, is will my therapist's mind be something that's more flexible or more integrated than my own so that I can get that from them? from him, from her. And of course, the sad thing is, is that sometimes people pick therapists whose minds are not more integrated than the patients, and then the therapy goes nowhere and people waste time and money. One of the big takeaways from this conversation is the importance of the therapist's personal work. Exactly. And I think that 
frankly, that what's, I think, what I have to offer, what's made me somewhat compelling to therapists in training or people who are early in their careers is that I feel like that I'm a, um, you know, an example of the transformation that can occur. And so I don't come to the field or speak in the field from the position of always having been the pretty functional human being, mm-hmm. right? It's like I come from the fact that I was a patient who was suicidal, who had three major depressions, who, you know, and, and the evidence of the goodness of therapy is, is that once you've had one major depression, just statistics of having a second one are greater. Sure. And you've had three, then there's likelihood you're going to have four and five and six and seven. And I've not had another one in, what, 24 years. Wow. And so there's the proof, I think, that this shit works. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that energizes me to do it because I know it worked for me and I know it can work for other people. You've been listening to Between Us. I'm John Totten. Between Us was produced by myself and Mason Neely, who also composed our music. As usual, find us on social media, look us up on Facebook and Twitter, and let us know what you think, reach out, and take care.